Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canadian uh, MPs get back to work uh, later this week. And uh, I'm guessing, you know, way out of the limb here and figure, you know what, the economy is going to come up in the conversation sometime this week, I think, in Parliament. Uh, and what to do with it, because there are very differing opinions depending on which side of the House you're sitting on, uh, as we've seen with some of the comments from the opposition leader and, of course, from the prime minister. So what are the solutions? Because we've got a problem here. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Moshe Lander. Moshe, of course, is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. Moshe, thanks for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. It's always a pleasure. Let's talk a little bit about, about approaches to this. And, uh, you know, we know we've got a problem. I mean, the inflation rate is still ridiculously high. And people are being impacted in almost every facet of their life. Uh, the government came up with a plan uh, about a week or so ago uh, that talked about uh, GST credits and, and, of course, the dental plan, uh, suggesting that this is part of the solution. I don't think anybody ever said that, okay, we can put the toolkit away. We're all okay now. But are they heading in the right direction, Moshe? No, they're not. Um the, the, the problem that um, you and I have discussed this multiple times is that there's two sources of inflation. One of them is from the demand side. One of them is from the supply side. And so when the Bank of Canada is increasing interest rates aggressively, what they're trying to do is curb the demand side of the inflation story. But the problem is that interest rates are not going to fix the supply side of the story. And what the government came out with is not going to address that either. In fact, what they've contributed is an extra source of demand into the economy, which is why I keep saying that this is, in fact, uh, counterproductive. It's going to contribute to inflation rather than solve it. So the fact that they're handing checks out, which is obviously what they did during the pandemic, uh, is, is actually, it, it, it's not the cause of this, as, as some people in Parliament would suggest, but it certainly was a contributor. Yeah. Um, anytime that you have excessive government spending, and excessive would mean that when a government runs a deficit, to finance things that are not increasing the productive capacity of the economy. That is going to be inflationary. So whether that's contributing one percentage point of the seven and a half or two percentage points or seven of the seven and a half, the fact is it's contributing something. And so even though they've cut back dramatically on their curb spending and uh, wage subsidy programs and things like that during the pandemic, the fact is when they're introducing another three and a half, four billion dollars of new spending, it's not going to add a full percentage point, but it's going to add a fraction of a percentage point. And that just means the Bank of Canada has to increase interest rates more and more aggressively to now curb the government as well. You know, there's a great deal of frustration, clearly. You and I have talked about that over the last number of weeks. Uh, and uh, maybe part of that is, is being fueled for the fact that we're looking for a quick solution here. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me of somebody, you know, who's you know, gone on a diet and they keep looking at the scale every day. So I haven't lost any weight. I haven't lost. It's only been two days. Come on. Uh, you know, we want this to be over. And and yourself and others uh, with expertise in this field are basically saying we're in this for the long haul. It's going to take some time. Yeah. Any monetary policy uh, under any circumstances takes about 12 to 18 months to work its way through the economy. So on whatever level people want inflation to be over, I mean, I want it to be over with too. Uh, the fact is that we need to take a look at when did the Bank of Canada start to move and tack on 12 to 18 months. So their first move was in February of this year. So by my rough calculations, 12 months from then is February of 23 and 18 months is August of 23. And that first increase, Bill, if you remember, was just 25 basis points. It was a little baby increase. So mm -hmm. we're only going to really see a baby full effect. Uh, the big increases of the full percentage points or the 75 basis points that we saw in two meetings 
those things aren't going to come until the end of next year. So we do have a little bit of a wait ahead of us. But the fact is that if the entire amount of time that this inflationary period lasted is two years from an economic standpoint, that is transitory, right? In the grand scheme of things, we just laid to rest somebody who was a monarch for 70 years. Two years is a blink of an eye. It's nothing. Well, and we saw that happen, though. I mean, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I mean, the inflation rate was 8.1%. It's dropped to 76 and, and And we had people already said, aha, see, this is working. We'll be out of this in no time at all. That was an aberration, I guess. I'm glad it happened, uh, but it's not really a trend at this stage, is it? No, and even if it drops when we get the, the next inflation number in the next little while here, uh, again, it's not necessarily indicative that the interest rates uh, are, are working faster than usual, it's that there's a psychological element that we've been talking about this nonstop as an economic story now for six to eight months, right? It, it is the dominating idea uh, of the post-COVID economy. And so uh, the, the psychological aspect of housing prices are going to fall, interest rate increases are, are on their way, and it's going to curb spending, and it's going to make debt all the more expensive. And these types of things start to have a psychologically damaging effect where people start cutting back on their spending. And so to some extent, then, we could say that it's uh, because of the higher interest rates, but it, it's more that we're just expecting that inflation is going to come down. And the, the great thing is that from a consumer standpoint, if you believe prices are going to come down, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so we're maybe seeing the early stages of that rather than the full economic impact of what higher interest rates mean. What should the first step have been? Did the bank wait too long to, to, to get into this game? No, they, they didn't wait too long. I, I know that we, we now have an actual uh, party leader who's very aggressively uh, opposed to the Bank of Canada for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the accusations that he's charging them with is that they waited too long and they made this worse. Uh, my position has been pretty clear, which is when COVID restrictions were in place, even if it was just for a few provinces, the fact is that it was still indicative of the fact that the Canadian economy was not well enough to uh, absorb higher interest rates. There were still too many uncertainties about how our lives were going to be affected, how we were going to be able to function within society, whether we were going to have a job to go to. Those types of restrictions then needed to be lifted for the Bank of Canada to say, okay, from an economic standpoint, we're back to business as usual, which means we're coming at you now to, to rein in inflation. And so they, they kind of had to wait until those, those COVID restrictions were finally lifted. Uh, and they moved as soon as they were. So I, I think they moved in the right time. Uh, and they have moved aggressively to try and make up for when they couldn't really operate. So I, I think they've done a, a reasonable job here. A number of your colleagues are suggesting uh, that there has to be, as you've mentioned, a long-term strategy. Uh, but from a political standpoint, th there has to be some short-term strategies here, too, to keep people, I, I guess, on side with this and maybe even to give them a little bit of hope. Uh, how can a government approach that? What sort of short-term stuff uh, can, can they try or at least entertain uh, to, to put in place to try to alleviate some of this. I mean, the, the, as you mentioned, the, the GST rebates and the dental plan, uh, they think is part of that solution. But as you mentioned, it, it might be just actually adding fuel to the fire. Yeah, I, I think what we've seen missing from not just this government, but many governments around the world is if one of the main sources of this inflation is coming from the supply side, then what steps are the governments taking to address supply-side issues? These spending plans are, are all addressing demand, and in fact, that's counterproductive, right, because they're increasing demand rather than decreasing it. But, you know, I, I want to see governments where they're talking about, all right, we need to introduce more competition into society. So we need to 
liberalize the cell phone market. We need to liberalize the banking sector. We need to liberalize the air sector. I mean, if anybody's taken a look at what it costs to fly these days, it's great that there's some of these low-cost companies coming online, in fact, coming through Hamilton even, uh, but the fact is they need to go much, much further, and they need to lay groundwork now to introduce more flexible supply into the economy. If they start doing that, uh, it might not bear fruit this week or this year even, uh, but it's the type of thing that sustainably over the next five to ten years, they can really see the benefit that uh, reduces the amount of inflationary pressure. Which is going to run contrary, as you mentioned, to Canadian policy, government policy anyway, for years now. Uh, even if you don't want to go on so far as to call some of these things monopolies, they're very close to them. Uh, you know, when you've got essentially the big three running the communications industry in this country uh, and others knocking at the door. I know Verizon from the States would love to come up here uh, and others uh, from a global standpoint would love to come up here, too. But the answer is always no. Uh, we've got to change that mindset, don't we? Yes, and, and we've moved in that direction over a period of about 30 or 40 years. So this isn't a one particular party, and it's not one particular policy. Uh, we've just moved uh, to defang the Competition Bureau, which, you know, back in my day was kind of the, the resting point for a lot of economics graduates. Was That's where you went off and worked, and you took a look at competition policy and tried to figure out if these mergers were anti-competitive in nature, if they were drifting us towards monopoly and if it was in the consumer interest. And I think along the way, uh, a lot of lack of funding for those types of institutions have allowed these mergers to take place. A lot of lobbying has gone into uh, convincing politicians that this is in the public interest when maybe in fact it's not. And I, I think that we're now at a point where these political parties need to step up and say, we're going to reintroduce competition back into this economy uh, one way or the other. And whether that's through deregulating electricity and energy markets or the cell phone market, uh, telecommunications, airlines, banking. <laughs> There's so many things that they can do, uh, and it doesn't really involve a huge amount of spending money. So it, it gives you the double whammy that it boosts the supply side of the economy without necessarily boosting government deficits at the same time. Okay, and if a government were to come up with an idea like that, and I don't disagree with you, I think it makes all kinds of sense. You know, most of the first argument they're going to dust off is, well, we're going to lose our sovereignty then. We can't afford to do that. Yeah, and and so this is where we always run into the problem with economics, which is politics runs headlong to economics and will always win the day, right? And so, you know, part of the problem is that politicians realize that what they're trying to sell in terms of good economic policy usually runs afoul of maybe uninformed voters. Uh, And it's not that they don't have the capacity to understand what the issues are. It's just they don't want to understand what the issues are or that, you know, they're more concerned with their personal lives, which they should be, uh, but to the extent of uh, getting informed about what this actually means medium to long term. And so when we end up in a situation like we're in now, uh, everybody's at a loss for how do we fix things because the voter doesn't necessarily appreciate what's in play here. And so what politician wants to spend 10, 15 minutes coming on your show or any show trying to explain the merits of liberalized markets, uh, it, it, it doesn't work. And so that that's where you end up with we just take the path of least resistance, and especially if you have to face an electorate within a couple of years. But, but I mean, 
when I, when I took economics and I, I didn't go as far, I took a couple of years in college anyway. I mean, the first lesson was competition is the best thing for consumers. I mean, that's, that's basic economics, isn't it? I mean, and, and it's actually good for business too, because let's face it, you know, the, the more people doing that, the more competitive you're going to be, but the better you're going to be too, uh, as opposed to getting into this complacency that seems to fester an awful lot of the time in, in some of the industries you've just talked about. Yeah, I mean, you know, businesses might not necessarily like competition, though. If, if they can maintain their market power um, because they're innovative, then, yeah, they won't be afraid of competition. But if they maintain their market power through creating, you know, artificial barriers that just keep out competitors, then they can maintain profitability uh, despite being lazy and inefficient, right, because they just created these artificial barriers. So, again, this is where you need some sort of competition authority that's analyzing what is the nature of this market structure uh, and, and why is it monopolistic? Is it permanent in nature? Is it transitory in nature? But you're right. You know, an intro econ student learns that competition is good. And the problem is that where I teach, there are 45,000 students on campus and only 8,000 of them take an intro-level economics course. So, you know, we're letting 80% of society slip through our fingers where they're not even being exposed to that basic idea. Um, they eventually become voters. Uh, and so who are you going to cater to, the 20% that's informed or the 80% that's uninformed and tell them what they want to hear? Well, we can go all the way back. I'll, I'll go step back even from university. That's a, a, Elementary and high school is where that, that education should begin, isn't it? So we have some sense of, of what's going to have a direct impact on our lives. You're preaching to the choir on that one. I, I, I oh, yeah. agree. But yeah, that, that, that's exactly it. It, it. It's that when you have people that are uninformed about economics, you know, the, the power structure that I don't think we realize is that we are the employer here and the politicians are our employees. The problem is that I, I haven't really run into a lot of politicians that don't understand what we're discussing. What they push back on is, is this going to win me votes? And if we say, well, no, because the employer, the voter, is uninformed about these issues, then they say, well, then I'm not going to tell my employer bad news. I'm going to give them good news. I'm going to tell them what they want to hear. And so it, it really is a problem that, that starts much, much earlier than where we are now. Uh, but it's a problem, too, that you know municipal school boards are going to say, we don't have the budget for that. <laughs> um, and we don't necessarily have the, the student interest because at the time when they learn it, they can't translate into that something practical because they're not allowed to vote until they're 18, 19. If, if that happened, let me just go down to the hypothetical for a second. It's an interesting uh, way of looking at this. Could we avoid some of these pitfalls? I mean, you know, could we stop putting our hand on the hot oven if, if we understood that, hey, wait a second, there's another way. I don't have to hurt myself. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, you, you still can't stop war in Ukraine. You still can't stop COVID. You can't stop, you know, global warming, at least not in the simplest lowest common denominator sort of way. Uh, but yeah, everybody would understand at this point that this inflation is transitory. It is going to go away within about 12 to 18 months. We would understand what interest rate increases mean. We would understand that governments don't necessarily need to give us $500 rent top-ups and things like that. Uh, and so that would help make the job of the Bank of Canada all the easier because everybody would understand exactly what it is that's being done and exactly what it is that can't be done. And so, yes, it would make uh, for a much, much easier and smoother society uh, and would be much more flexible in adapting to any sort of shock that hits the system, good or bad. Well, and to your point about increasing supply, I mean, that's part of the problem, too, isn't it? I mean, you know, I have not had a politician yet that wants to say, you know what, I, I, I'll I, raise taxes because we need to do this, 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 and this. They always want to present themselves as being frugal, so keep people's taxes down. And and we're to blame for that to a certain degree, too, because we, we demand that of them. 
But, you know, one of the reasons you rent high is because we don't have enough supply. We don't have enough stock. We don't have enough houses. We don't have enough rental units. And, and, and that's because governments haven't spent that money. And now we're paying a price for that as well. We have to understand cause and effect, I guess, don't we? We do. And we also have to understand that, you know, things like these problems are because there's intense lobbying from people that do understand the problem better than those that don't, right? So it's an information asymmetry that exists as well. If homeowners understand what the value is of limiting uh, housing development, right, it protects their asset, uh, but the, the people who are unhoused or underhoused don't realize the power of their lobbying if they were to coalesce and, and push back on government, uh, then we end up in this situation where housing continues to remain unaffordable to the vast majority of Canadians merely because they don't know how to mobilize themselves to create a counterweight to those that are limiting housing development. So, you know, again, it's an issue of uh, badly informed voters uh, that starts so much earlier uh, than, you know, the time the problem exists. And so teaching them uh, values, uh, Canadian values, teaching them the value of democracy, that's all great, but it, it needs to translate into something much, much deeper than uh, giving them buzzwords. It's this is what economics means, and this is how it touches every aspect of your daily life uh, in order to appreciate it. To that point, then, I mean, there are some economic, economics experts right now that are saying, look, at, uh, you know how this is going to end up. We're going to end up right back in a recession, and that's going to hurt just as much as what we're going through right now. Is there an inevitable consequence to what we're doing? Well, uh, if not a recession, then for sure an economic slowdown. But again, take a look at the way that uh, the, the people that you're citing are talking about it, right, that this is necessarily a bad thing. Uh, I push back and say that a recession is not necessarily a bad thing. It's a chance for the economy to reset and to rebalance itself. It's a chance for inefficient zombie companies to go down and release their productive assets into society to those that can use it more efficiently, more profitably. And so it helps society reorient itself. Maybe things like the food and beverage sector, the tourism sector, uh, maybe the hospitality sector and the retail sector need to really think their business models all over again, because in a post-COVID world, maybe we don't want to eat out as much. Maybe we want the comfort of being able to sit in our underwear and watch Netflix and have the food delivered to us, right? Maybe our tourism behavior is going to change in a way where we don't necessarily want to go on cruise ships anymore that might be just breeding disease. And maybe we want something that's a little more open air oriented. So, you know, if, if a recession comes along, then this could actually help reorient the economy towards a prosperous middle 21st century than continuing on with the old stale model that maybe doesn't really apply anymore. Well, maybe when these guys get back to work in Ottawa, they'll put the bombast and the rhetoric aside and have an honest discussion about that. Or or maybe not. Who knows? Uh, Moshe, it's always a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for this today. Really appreciate it. You got it. Anytime. Moshe Lander, who is a senior economics lecturer at Concordia University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.